Good morning, Claire McCarty. Welcome on VH Berries. Good morning. Thank you for having me here. I'm feeling very excited. I really love your podcast, by the way. You speak to some very interesting people. <laughs> I am extremely uh, grateful because humanity doesn't need to look any further. Claire McCarthy is the epitome of uh, the time machine um, because you stop and freeze time and through your paintings and your movies, you also manage to feel our emotion with wonder. How are you doing today? Wow, that, I, was, I was very curious to know how you would, uh, would, would start the show, Victor, but you are the magician at amazing curtain raising. So thank you. That's very nice of you. Thank you. I'm doing good today. How are you doing? I am doing very good and I would love uh, to start by talking about this very interesting uh, crossover that is very specific to yourself, um, Claire McCarthy. I am talking about the one between painting and film. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, I, I have had this strange tension or... I, I guess looking for balance between these two sides of myself. I've I've always been really interested in painting and in the in in imagery really and visual language and and also simultaneously been really interested in film. So I've kind of kept the two of them working. When I first started off as a uh, in the film industry, I had been previous to that. Uh, I had an artist studio, was exhibiting, and I was also working as a side hustle as a uh, scenic painter um, on movies and also sometimes like, you know, just doing jobs for hire as a painter, even painting walls. But uh, some of the things that I did were big murals or street murals or things that needed sort of figurative elements. So I was working commercially as an artist, but also in the film industry and the art department. Um, and uh, it got slightly confusing because I was, you know, often doing commercials or working on movies. And my real passion was really about the directing language and, and what was happening in front of the camera. Well, not my real passion, but my other passion. So this has always been this, uh, this kind of balance for me is, is that. And I guess it wasn't until I actually worked on a big series, big, big series of movies called The Matrix um, at one point, and I was making props in the scenic art department, in, in the art department, um, and doing some set finishing and various things on, on those movies, particularly Matrix 3. And I ended up um, sneaking into the main studios. I'd finish my work and on my lunch break or whenever I could, whenever I got what I, a little break, I would rush into the studio to watch the Wachowski brothers directing. And um, whenever I had an opportunity to kind of sit in on some masters doing their work. That was my big MO. So, yeah, it wasn't until 
I was offered quite another big movie uh, in the art department that I decided I would actually finish my studies at the Australian Film (laughs) Television Radio School in directing because before that I finished a, a design degree. I was very interested in visual communication and I did a film major and I had made a couple of films but... I really felt uh, ready to tackle a master's in, in film directing at that point, or thought I did, and, and ended up going to film school. And whilst at film school, I ended up, because I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of money. Actually, to go to the film school, you did get a scholarship, so it was amazing. It's, it's not like it now like it was when I went. When, when I went, there was only four people in each area, so four cinematographers, four producers, four directors, four production designers, etc. across all the major departments. And it was this amazing place, like a melting pot of all these creatives. And one of the, th- the things back then when I did it was you had to have a body of work. You had to have worked in the industry. You had to have made some, some films. So... Um, you were actually working with people that were reasonably experienced and had had a bit of life experience. It was, it's, it's not an entry back then. It wasn't an entry level straight after school. It was, you had to have had a body of work and had to have stepped from either another degree or from industry experience. So that was really, really amazing to be amongst that group of people at that time. But even though it was a scholarship, it was only a tiny bit of money and I, I didn't have a lot of savings. And I sort of entered this kind of, I guess, a bit of a monk-like state at, at film school. I was completely focused on wanting to learn and just absorb everything I could during this time because there was like a cinema where we could project like 70 mil prints of rare movies I had this incredible library with with rare um films like people that went to the film school like Jane Campion and Philip Noyce and Fred Skepsi and you know some of the filmmakers that I consider to be my heroes and so having access to those resources was incredible so I I kind of I, I was in this monk-like state, but I was also doing this balance between at night or some afternoons and on my weekends, I would often be doing uh, scenic work, um, painting murals or working on commercials or working on projects or often doing days here and there on other movies in order to sort of get through film school. And yeah, I was often uh, two, three hours sleep coming back to film school and um, yeah, it was an interesting time in my life where this language of of expressing myself through the paintbrush and through the camera became very blurred but uh these days you know I guess I I think the visual language like being able to be in galleries seeing what other artists are doing and the way that the kineticism of the visual language through the camera and the way people make art films and working uh, as a as a filmmaker in in other areas like um, music video or fashion films, I find all those things really interesting because there can be a narrative, but it's a slightly different adjacent type of expression to to what I'm doing in feature films uh, and television where the emphasis is on usually a classic structure and filmmaking language so yeah it's interesting but I I often now I get into the habit of um, looking at an actor's face so much that I end up becoming obsessed with their faces and I often paint a portrait of them as a present as a gift (laughs) at the end of a production which is a slightly weird thing to do but it's become a little tradition now (laughs) that I uh, I I quite like uh, that relationship of 
watching someone so closely that you know their every nuance and then you can interpret it uh, in a different way with the paintbrush than you can with the camera. But yeah, that's, that's the balance, that's the thing. Is that the aim is to try to continue to do both because they are very different mediums. And I think with film, it's such a collective medium. It's, it's really a big old crazy family um, of crazy artists. And obviously it's a time and money driven medium film. You know, you, you have to really know what you want in advance. You have to really be articulate about your ideas. The bigger the budget, obviously, the more preparation um, and planning it's there's sometimes you know 150 plus people on a set uh, you know depending on the size of the project whereas there's something very um singular and and specific about things like singular endeavor endeavors like writing i also do quite a lot of writing but writing and painting it's it's really you and you and your you know your hands there's something very primal and very special about that experience where you sort of slip into a different type of creative process um that's not it is ultimately collective because it will be viewed by someone other than yourself but it's it's very personal in 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 the way that it's generated which i really like that um so yeah as a matter of fact, Claire McCarthy, you built your uh, body of experiences through those very, very productive lunch break uh, that are now not lunch break because you were doing anything but having lunch. <laughs> it is true. It is very true. I did learn a lot. I mean, I... I think I must have thought, and I, this has taken me some time to realize this perhaps, but the experiences that I had on uh, as an early um, student of film and, and, and someone passionate about hopefully having a place in the film industry and developing my own voice, um, I think I misunderstood that every film had to be this massive circus and because everything that I had been on were these big productions and... And so when I went and decided after film school to make my first feature film, which was, we had no money, was literally made for, you know, you know, whatever, whatever small amount of money I could raise at that time. We did get some, uh, very lucky to have had some support for post-production money to edit the film and, um, and release the film independently. And it went to a number of festivals, but the film was made, you know, on, uh, on blood, sweat and tears. It's, um, it's called Cross Life, the film, and it's basically in the red light district, set in the red light district in Sydney. But even that film, I realise now uh, more and more that the film, uh, even though it's very simple and it's it's sort of verite, it's on the streets, it's dealing with real people. There's this intersection of real people and or non-actors playing themselves, integrated with actors that have observed the space and are playing roles in this particular film and. But the film, it's like five stories and each story is so complicated and there's all these elements and my goodness, like it was bigger than Ben-Hur when I think about what we took on as a team for this no-budget film. And um, it's taken me a long time to go, well, sometimes having all the tools and all the toys is one thing, but actually understanding drama and actually understanding what makes something compelling can sometimes be less is more and restraint 
and and tension can be found by taking things away and stripping things back and um yeah i think more and more i look at some of the films that are that are things that i'm interested in there's there's not as much of a circus attached to it which uh, is interesting absolutely claire mccarthy less is more and how would you describe uh, that monk style a uh, state that you just described uh, and that um, led you to building your uh, body of work and your filmography yes i mean i i have i've spent a lot of time trying to i guess look inwards but also really learn there's so many amazing teachers uh in the film in the film uh history and the canon you know who have made some incredible contributions to cinema and continue to do so and you know really takes a lot of focus to analyze the work analyze the frame what is in the frame what's not in the frame what does that communicate The formal language of filmmaking, I think, is an early... It feels like a, a, still a baby in some respects, and I think it's really interesting how we approach the language of, of, um, of film. So I guess when I say a monk-like state, that was probably more when I was at film school. I was like, no distractions, you know. I, I wouldn't turn up to the parties, and I was very, like, uh, I guess just, I mean, not completely monk-like, but I was really focused on wanting to just absorb everything I could while I, I just, I think I knew at the time it was a pretty special experience to be in that particular place because sometimes it's really hard to find those films. At least they were back then, um, like the Curzon classics and things that you can now buy or, or you have to really hunt them out. But um, just to, also, you know, that joy of looking into a certain filmmaker, like, you know, Bergman, for example, and you might, go down this rabbit hole and discover because they've got all their like all their works uh, being able to get there and watch all of them just in a dark room by yourself it's <laughs> it doesn't sound very exciting but to me at the time that was totally bliss and and even now I mean I really enjoy really enjoy watching other people's films and enjoy film festivals and being able to You know, I think it's probably something we should do more is uh, support each other as filmmakers. You know, the language, the the, um, the expression, the art form, being able to figure out what it is historically, but also where it's where it is going forward. I think is is really interesting. I think a lot of the precepts about the way we make movies, the way that the production kind of the kind of way the mechanism works is often based upon a kind of weird intersection of like the industrial revolution, you know, sort of looking at the kind of workplace and the military or something. It's like the language of the way that we, we do things is very precise and very sort of militaristic, but I, I sometimes it's very, it, it is, it's something for me that I've learned over the years is trying to hold space for the kind of way that I want to work. What's the energy going to feel like what would I like people to experience as an actor on this set what kind of energy do I need to create for this particular story um, how can we not feel like it's just looking at the time and that we're just marching forward only you know to just deliver the lines on the page how can we seek for something deeper and better inside the material so that 
we can move people because because I think it does need you know sometimes people become so efficient and so obsessed with um, efficiency that they sometimes miss it, it can, it's always the tension you know how do you spin straw into gold in this medium is is of interest to me the process and process and I, and I think the energy and the the kind of weird alchemy of how that team comes together in that time it becomes a happening and, a, and an imprint of those people's contributions um and incredible artists that come together to make something it's it's very special so yeah i do tend to even though I'm, i wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a monk i definitely consider the film experience the making of it and the whole idea of watching it collectively to be so special uh i mean how how many mediums do you get to watch for an hour, like 90 minutes or two hours, sometimes longer these days, um, where you're just, you're just sitting and absorbing something. It, it, it's a very interesting <laughs> relationship, you know, to, to experience. Um, it's, it's maybe the last true church, you know. So anyway. It is. <laughs> Claire McCarthy, probably the last uh, church. And um, furthermore, I, I really need uh, your help to better understand the McCarthy emotional language and alphabet and a first name that matches the word help is the name Ophelia. Oh, it's a good segue. I like that, Victor. Um, yes, I mean, she is iconic. And I, I actually studied the play and, and staged um, portions of the play uh, and was obsessed with the play, in fact. Um, and when this Ophelia script came to me, I was sort of like... This is... I, I haven't had this many times, but I was before, and hopefully it will happen many, many times uh, from this point. But when I received that script, I was feeling very much like this was something I could contribute to and that it was almost meant to be. It felt like, wow, this is something I feel I have an opinion on. Because I think Ophelia has about 12 lines or something less in the original play. And it always troubled me that she was this sort of, I guess, misunderstood um well, not necessarily misunderstood, but she was this tragic heroine. She had very little to say. And in this piece, we had this, we still sort of preserve the kind of, I guess, the female legacy and the underpinning story of Hamlet, but we sort of twist everything on its axis to find new meaning and to give new currency to this character. And um, it's interesting, I think since that time, filmmakers have become incredibly bold about their revisionist interpretations of both history, true and, and apocryphal. And it's really interesting, I think, to see how how the medium of film is really challenging um, these narratives, looking at that intersection, which I think is always the question I always ask is, why is this relevant? If we're going to go back in time, how can we reflect something on our experience in the current reality? And I think that's really interesting how um, a lot of storytellers and filmmakers of, of now are looking at their current circumstances. And Absolutely, Claire McCarthy. You just mentioned the fact that the source material was very powerful because um, 
the feature film Ophelia is directly based on a book written by, by Guglielmus Shakespeare, um, a book called Hamlet. And I would love to know more about how you would describe your adaptation and your way of creating something relevant uh, based on a previous uh, piece of art and a book. Yes, absolutely. Well, what I think is really amazing in, in the original Hamlet play is this exploration of, I guess, uh, rumination of, of conflict of this young person kind of almost squeezed into a corner, trapped into a corner where they're having to decide what is the best course of action in circumstances that are so difficult to decide and that, um, you know, is about the family life and the political circumstances, that the, the context that he comes from where he's compelled to have to put himself in a position where he has to potentially compromise himself, compromise his integrity. And I think that's an, an extremely interesting and very contemporary question even now to, to discuss. But also uh, the way that Ophelia sits in that story, she becomes a kind of beacon of, of light for Hamlet at a time when he, um, I guess, doesn't really have a moral compass or he's trying to work out where he sits within all these difficult things he's experiencing. So she she is kind of his, his um, you know, his ray of light or his reference point for, for love and for truth. And she becomes a tragic hero because he's unable to really um, reach for that. So in this version, I guess what's really interesting, and, and this film sits at the start of what has become a really interesting revisionist movement in cinema, I think, and in television too, where uh, people are taking texts or history and kind of turning them on their head and asking questions about, well, what would happen if this didn't happen this way? Or perhaps history is only really recording it from certain characters' points of view, usually the men and usually the winners. So what happens if we invert things? And so in this version, it's looking at Ophelia and discussing what would happen if her story had more agency, if we didn't paint her as being uh, completely undone by Hamlet's actions and if perhaps she had more cunning and more survival skills herself to perhaps – um, make a decision for herself about whether or not she would remain within the system that she belonged in or whether or not she would choose to step out of it. So uh, those questions I think were, you know, and I think that's the thing, you know, when, when something is set in a different time period, it becomes a big question from my perspective of why do we want to make this particular story? How does it reflect on what we're experiencing now? And I think those questions of choice and of uh, point of view and of uh, really examining the questions around morality and politics, I think they become really, um, they're really relevant questions. And it, 
I really hope the film still safeguards the original thematic intentions of Shakespeare's play. Like we didn't want to completely abandon that or deconstruct that. It was intended to be, you know, hopefully truthful to that, but also, I guess, a cheeky twist on that by by vesting a lot of the power relationship onto the female characters. Um, and that's also true of not only Ophelia, but also of Queen Gertrude, who's a little bit, you know, in a lot of, she's often misinterpreted, or she's often interpreted um, differently in different uh, versions of the play. Um, but, and through time, there's been a question as to whether or not she willingly had been unfaithful to the king prior to his death and was complicit to it. And so we were raising that question about her character as well in, in the film, wanting to explore uh, different ways of seeing her relationship to power and privilege and how this in some respects was a bit of a gilded cage that she lived within and, and what what can we see uh, are her dilemmas within that as a woman of that time. In definitive, Claire McCarthy, you were raising and asking questions uh, by, for example, also putting experiences into the eyes of Ophelia, but also into the eyes of another character. I am talking about an unfledged white peacock that is waiting uh, around approximately 8.8 pounds with normal colored eyes and pigmented skin. <laughs> Absolutely. That's very well observed, Victor. Yes, there is a uh, an albino peacock in the film, which, again, it's this, I, I guess the film is a kind of mythic, slightly storybook version of, of the, of the Shakespeare play. And in, in kind of inverting its axis in some respects, reinterpreting this text, it, it does sit in a sort of 14th century world, but there is a sense of, I guess, whimsy about it. There's a bit of a homage to the kind of pre-Raphaelites in terms of color palette and costume and, and also this sense of an exoticism that the world is, um, is, is larger than the kingdom, that there's been a sense of travel or interest, that we sort of almost sit at this intersection of, of religion and, and science or progress and how does that see us think about reasoning or think about morality or think about power. So, yes, there's this peacock that is a sort of a a sort of a nod to the the kind of um the kind of rarefied exoticism within the kingdom but also i guess for me i i do have a lot of peacocks and birds and chickens in particular in a lot of my films so i kind of <laughs> i kind of i kind of like the the symbolism of that and uh and what that can bring in these sort of layered kind of subtle things that if you look behind this this the sort of scenes that you can find these other messages and layers as well absolutely claire mccarty by adding those animals you are adding some uh, additional layers to the story and to the uh, meaning of uh, 
your uh, feature films you just mentioned uh, that uh, 8.8 pounds a white peacock but also the chickens and eventually the sound of some birds because this is the way you opened the movie Ophelia. That's very well observed as well. Yes, it does start on this kind of mur and murmurations become a, an interesting um, kind of uh, sonic kind of, uh, I guess, a thread throughout the film that that's woven with Stephen Price as the composer on the film and him and the production designer did a beautiful job of figuring out that that sound world uh, and that kind of emotional world of music in the film. And and S Stephen actually wrote uh, his music around a kind of a love letter between Hamlet and Ophelia that kind of develops into an anthem uh, towards the very end of the film. It sort of climaxes. Well, that, and the intention of that is to kind of build this sense of the natural world and these voices of birds or voices of nature that then eventually become almost like a human tidal wave of voices that are kind of pulling these two lovers apart because they sit so diametrically opposed in terms of their worldview. That's the sort of operatic intention. Uh, you know, I mean, I think also to your point about um, picking up on these little symbols and little subtleties of design and uh, sound and music. Um, you know, I think that we felt that myself and my collaborators um, had a fantastic uh, creative group on that film. Uh, we really wanted there to be... I guess, you know, faithful, as I said before, to the original text, but also I guess we figured that, you know, Shakespeare, from my mind, I mean, having studied so many of his plays, I kind of know he never really left Stratford-upon-Avon or maybe went to London, but I, I don't believe he went to Denmark and I don't believe he went to Italy or spent time in Verona or Venice, for example. So I think... Um, yeah, I think there was license and there is license in this in this kind of thing of, of in reinterpreting and restaging material like this to bring these other subtle subtexts and symbolic layers to the material. Absolutely, Claire McCarthy, you just referred uh, the musical aspect uh, by doing a connection with uh, the composer Stephen Price who uh, did all the musics and the soundtracks and you stayed very faithful to the text because uh, of one aspect of Ophelia which is the costumes because I am personally suspecting you uh, to um, have taken all of those uh, uh, dresses and clothes from your own, the Mokorti wardrobe. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more about the elegance of uh, this aspect that is a testament of the elegance of the visuals? Oh, thank you. I mean, definitely uh, I have to... I would love to take credit for the costumes, but Massimo Cantini, who's the costume designer, did such a beautiful job. 
um, him and his team handmade uh, all those beautiful dresses, particularly Ophelia's teal. I mean, I knew she needed to feel like the colour of water. She needed to feel, uh, you know, I think blue and that tealy blue has such a kind of symbolic colour and and also the long uh, pre-Raphaelite sleeves. And we also made decisions about not having corsets in the film um, and using things like hoods and shrouds and head pieces uh, when Queen Gertrude has her her beautiful kind of day spa kind of bath thing. Um, she has this has this kind of head piece, um, like a towel turban, which um, you know isn't so far away from what one would expect because there were no hair dryers. So, but this sense of um, broadening the the kind of the palette and the the kind of aesthetic view something that Massimo was really into and also thinking about little subtle things like what are the motifs in the jewellery and what does the hair look like and how can it move and how can it feel natural and what are they I, – I feel like the physicality of an actor inside a costume really becomes the character um, and often it's collaborative. Hopefully it's collaborative with the actor too so they feel really like that's the right choice for, for what they need to do to get – as close to that character as possible, but it was a wonderful experience working with Massimo and <laughs> and also with um, my, my production designer and and cinematographer. We all worked very closely together to to discuss what what the palette was and what colours would we we would use. What were the formal elements, the framing, and all those kinds of choices. You know, were 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 definitely very well considered. Uh, but I was very lucky. To have such a great team. You were very lucky to have a such team, Claire Mocorti, and you just mentioned a cinematographer, and if I understood correctly, you are currently uh, with a cinematographer in the room who is helping you to frame and record. <laughs> I am talking about uh, Denson Baker ACS NZ CS. Uh, those two <laughs> endings are uh, titles and I am sure that uh, when you are hearing them, um, this can be an intense source of envy and jealousy, but don't worry because I've arranged with him so, so he can um, prepare you a great breakfast for tomorrow morning. <laughs> Yes, we are very lucky to have Denson not only supporting this interview, but I'm very, very lucky to have him as one of my key <laughs> collaborators in life and in crime. Uh, we've we've known each other for for a long time, and and I've been very lucky to have worked with him on probably the last. Gee, I can't even count now, but we've we've collaborated on a lot of projects together, which has been wonderful and. Yes, he was a cinematographer on Ophelia and um, did a beautiful job. He's just such a wonderful person to collaborate with. I always joke that there's just, you know, not enough room for all the awards that Denson receives because his work is very well regarded. Um, and he is, yeah, he is definitely um, just a wonderful person, wonderful artist. 
Denson Baker is a wonderful artist and at the space of winning a lot of awards, I am afraid that in a few years, I won't be able to remember all of those titles uh, with the ACSNYCS <laughs> and you actually founded together a production a company called Denaire Motion Picture Poetry. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Absolutely, yes. We, we do have a production company together where we are developing our own slate and have been for some years. And also we collaborate on a lot of projects as, as our production company. We, we've joined forces with a number of uh, producers and their production companies to make films, which has been really exciting and uh, we're kind of stepping forward with that. Um, we we have a number of projects at various stages, but yeah, it, it seemed to make sense for us because our partnership is so intrinsic and, and Denson and I do a lot of pre-visualization and um, work on projects, you know, sometimes years before they end up finally on screen, you know, I might be writing a script and, and then we'll develop material, visual materials, pitch materials, things like lookbooks. Um, and we've become quite deft at being able to put those things together for financiers and, and people that uh, might want to get a sense of what the, the look and feel of the film that we're, we're trying to make looks like. So that's that's been fantastic having Denson as that kind of a collaborator on on things really early on through dinner both of you are stepping forward and also standing out for example with one of the very primary visual components of dinner which is the logo because from my point of view i don't just see uh, two seahorses but two majestic um, hypocampus, which are two uh, mythical creatures. Again, beautifully observed, Victor. Yes, we we uh, designed and and made that logo ourselves together. We hand drew these two seahorses, and we did want it to feel kind of hand spun in a way and <laughs> mythical. And there's there's a lot of symbolism about seahorses and. Uh, Denson also has a kind of, I mean, you should interview him for your show because he's very interesting, but he also has a bit of a past life as a, um, as a sailor and, uh, we both really love the ocean, but he spent a lot of time on the high seas. So there is that component as well. And the idea of the underworld of, uh, of the ocean too. So yeah, we, we also have quite a lot of ambition with our projects and we're very, both of us quite interested in the medium, how to kind of create a certain, poetry in the imagery but also an emotion uh, we we have had the great joy of being able to experiment together with and he's very generous with me about allowing me to kind of um, be be right up inside um, the look and feel and creation of of the images um, and I mean obviously he's the director of photography but those decisions that and those experiments that we make be you know having looking at vintage lenses or interesting kinds of collaborations with companies that make lenses, um, thinking about ways to, um, you know, 
create bespoke effects in front of the frame as well as you know all the things that that you can create um to to make the look and feel of the film feel very special and those things are really you know so so wonderful to be able to do before and you know that long lead planning I think is really what makes a film feel very special and and it also it's a great collaboration because when I when I'm on set I really like to be next to the camera I like to watch the performances live um I mean if it's more than one camera often I'll have a a clan like a small uh, monitor but I really like to experience the performances fresh and focus on really thinking about the emotional lives of the characters and what's happening in a scene and what we can do to make that bolder and better and 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 having the support of someone like Denson who I know has got my back and that we've got a shared language it means I can feel a lot more free to kind of really focus on on being in the moment and making sure that I'm protecting that space for the work of the immediate uh, drama that's occurring uh, whilst we're filming. Being in the moment, as you just mentioned, Claire McCarthy is essential. And those two uh, majestic hypocampus are living also in the moment. They are together and they are stuck and very and having a very strong relationship exactly uh, as strong as the luck that was located on your television growing up can you tell us a little bit more about this adventure and how your older sister teresa saved the entire situation <laughs> Yes, uh, I did. I grew up uh, in a quite conservative, <laughs> but but academic uh, in lots of ways, Catholic family. Uh, and I think my parents, not so much now, but when I was growing up, were a little bit suspicious of the television and, and certainly about passive watching of the television. So my mother engineered uh, a cabinet, oh, she commissioned a cabinet maker to make a box for the television with doors and a lock. So we really had a very curated uh, program of television. We were allowed to watch the news. We were allowed to watch the Olympics. We were allowed to watch uh, a matinee movie on a Sunday after church while we were peeling vegetables and, and preparing food for the roast dinner, uh, roast lunch. And so um, the matinee movie was usually a black and white movie. It was usually like a Hitchcock or a film kind of from, you know, sort of 40s through to 50s, maybe sometimes a 30, 1930s film, but often black and white and some brilliant films. Like I, And... Yeah, I guess my diet of films was quite limited and certainly television was very limited as a child and uh, my parents really encouraged us to read and we we had a very I grew up in a very large family so there's a lot of siblings so a lot of it was we're also quite musical. Um, my mother's a concert pianist, so we had three pianos in the house and everyone plays an instrument. And so we were encouraged to make music and we often would uh, perform and sing around the piano. And we would often, I would often write little plays that we would make costumes for and, and, 
Yeah, it was, it sounds really, uh, I don't know what it sounds like, but that was my family chaos. And I guess my sister, Teresa, as we grew up, she's she's quite a rebel and quite amazing, incredible musician. And she, um, <laughs> she bought a small television from a secondhand store and she snuck it into the back of the laundry cupboard upstairs and hid it uh, behind the towels and linen. And so you could tell if someone was about to approach up the stairs because the third or fourth stair would creak so we would just have enough time to sort of turn off the television stuff it back in and put the towels in and leap to our room so I hope my mother and father aren't listening to this podcast but if they have if they are I I do apologize for my naughtiness but um my sister had a penchant particularly for horror films uh and and thrillers anything that was scary and uh so giallo films uh films from the you know 80s and 90s um we would watch them in the cupboard and uh yeah that's how I also developed this other side to me where I was quite I am quite interested in tension and drama and uh you know looking at um, films uh, on that small television. I, I mean, I honestly sometimes wonder how I ended up becoming a filmmaker, but definitely uh, my sister would have contributed greatly by that decision to get that secondhand television. Absolutely, Claire uh, McCarthy. It is all about timing when it comes uh, to uh, hide yourself <laughs> under the stairs. <laughs> and um, if I understood correctly, your sister actually uh, bought that second-hand television. He did it in the laundry cupboard. Exactly where all the towels and probably all the costumes and all the handcrafted uh, clothes for the movie Ophelia were kept all of those this time. Yes, definitely. We, it was a, a, certainly an inspiration. I mean, my, my mother, being a concert pianist, you know, her connection to, you know, really interesting music. She had a quartet. She would play a lot and accompany a lot of opera singers and in a past life, I was also, I, I, I sing as well. And I was in doing opera for a long time as well. And so that kind of sense of theatrical and being able to create these, these little performances and moments and uh, create costumes and things is certainly part of the dynamic of my family. Uh, but, and also I think, um, thinking about where maybe I was inspired as well. My, um, my Nana remarried, before I was born, she remarried an Italian, uh, beautiful Italian man, um, my nonno, um, who I grew up with. And he was very interested in Super 8. He had a Super 8 camera and he would also take uh, 35mm photography. So um, we would film some of our little performances on the cameras. And and also my, my mother's brother, he was quite interested in amateur um, video and film as well. So there, even though we didn't watch a lot of television, we were creating our own little things, so to speak, uh, in the family. Furthermore, Claire McCarthy, I feel that through all of those years and when you were peeling those potatoes and other vegetables, um, it really reinforces uh, your sense for 
the word that you heard on that television and on more specifically vocabulary terms because you like to use the word telly instead of television but also when you directed the feature film the color room you used the word color with the u letter and not the american way of spelling it that's that's very true uh, the film the color room uh which is um it's set in the north, uh, up up in the north of of the UK, in a, in a little town called Stoke on Trent, and uh, deals with <laughs> it deals with the factory world of, in particular, Claris Cliff, who was in the nineteen twenties was a factory worker, um, in in the pots, what's called the pots, the pottery kind of um, kind of industry. <laughs> yeah, and uh, color was such a, a kind of anomaly in a way because actually I didn't know this before I started that project but um up in up north in the pots it it was called the black country because it was so polluted and so black with smoke from these huge bottle kilns that they had there were I think back in the day almost 2000 if not more of these pots these huge kilns that would make all all the all the plated work, all the ceramics for all, not only the UK, but around the world. So this soot and this pollution was so overwhelming that you literally couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you're walking in the street. So yeah, the film, the way we spelt color is really, um, I guess, about the, the, um, the, the fact that we're in the UK, which is, you know, they add the U, I suppose, <laughs> the Americans. Uh, but it's also really to refer to the idea of this amazing woman who really defied logic. Like she was, she was this kind of young rebel who was working class. She was self-educated. She never had the money or means to go to art school uh, or to really have the privilege to sit and, and learn art like she might have if she'd come from money. But she managed to um, get some scholarships. She worked really hard independently. She worked in the factories and she managed to work her way up to being the first female art director and designer at um, at a huge company. Uh, Collie Shorter and Sons, uh, and made her own collection that that actually made millions, and still, I mean, it's very, very highly regarded now. But her whole philosophy and the whole thing of the film is kind of it's looking at this thing that really she kind of noticed that there were these roses and gilded plates and things for the tables, all very fussy, and her idea was to try and make uh, something cheap and cheerful and colourful for the everyday table, for the everyday person that um, that would bring a bit of optimism and fun into people's lives. And so in this film where we're, it's, it's not really a classic biopic, we don't do a sort of cradle-to-grave story, it's looking at um, the development of her first collection, which is... Um, it's a, a beautiful collection, very colourful, very influenced by modernism, but also how she had this philosophy of trying to think about what ordinary people wanted as opposed to just making things for people of privilege, which uh, 
which is really interesting because people of privilege wanted her stuff too, which is great. Absolutely, Claire McCarthy, the character of Clarice Cliff is a young rebel. And by using the letter U in the word color, you are also, also a rebel. And <laughs> this is a geopolitical move that catapulted you on the list of the most powerful decision makers of the year 2021? Well, <laughs> I don't know if we're the most powerful, but certainly we had a lot of fun making that film. It was it was difficult because we, we did shoot up in Stoke. It was really cold and it was during the second lockdown. Uh, so we were trying to figure out not only how to make this film in the 1920s, where there's a lot of logistics and moving parts in terms of creating the factory environment. A lot of, sadly, the, the bottle kilns, there's only a couple that still stand now uh, because Stoke still has this really strong tradition with ceramics and pottery, but sadly uh, it's not the heart of, of uh, the industry any longer. So, yeah, it was we had to sort of figure out how to create that in the movie. Um, we did do a call-out very early on uh, within the Stoke community to... Uh, just the general public to see who might be interested in participating in the film. And it was really amazing because so many locals um, and there's so so many multi-generations still in Stoke and in the satellite towns around Stoke who have worked in factories, work in ceramics, and they, there's this really strong tradition and pride in their history and in their legacy. So we managed to get pretty much everyone in the film uh, is actually from the area of Stoke and are experts either having worked or currently working within the potteries in one way or another or, are, you know, people that work in factories or have worked in are experts at ceramics. So it was really amazing and we they put workshops together for our actors and we were able to um, Phoebe Denevor, who's our fantastic lead actress who plays Clarice Cliff, she was just so brilliant at being able to absorb all this quite technical, creative information about how to manage clay and how to um, how to paint with with um, these specific glazes and different ways of doing things, and had these experts teach them and make videos for them of how to use this clay and how to paint these with these complicated glazes and how to mix the clay and how to mix the glazes and paints and colors. And, and, uh, yeah, with the support of that community, it was, it was quite special being able to collaborate with them on the film. Absolutely, Claire McCarthy. And in conclusion, let's come back to that word, uh, decision, because I would love to know more about the upcoming decisions that you are going to take in terms of projects for this year and the following one? Mm. I have I have quite a few projects that are juggling. Um, actually, some of them with some really wonderful actors that have become quite close friends. I have a project with, um, with David Dastmelchian, actually, who uh, is an amazing actor, 
just recently in Oppenheimer and uh, a number of other uh, Christopher Nolan films, but also other films and projects of his own. But I've been developing a project with him, which is quite interesting, set in the 1950s, a very unusual concept, uh, which will, he will also star in. And also been working on a project with uh, Viola Davis and her company, Juvie. Uh, that's actually been going for some, some time, uh, almost eight years now. Originally, a beautiful book Viola found um, uh, just around the time, might have been just after she was adopting uh, her beautiful daughter, Genesis. And um, long story short, uh, I made a film in India dealing with adoption in Calcutta and she saw the film and we felt that there was a really strong synergy uh, between us and we started to work on this uh, this book called The Personal History of Rachel Dupree, which uh, Viola um, was originally going to star in and now uh, because it's taken so long to do it and Viola has just had this meteoric rise, if that's the right word, she's just... You know, she's won the Tony and she's won multiple Emmys and she's been nominated for several Oscars and won. You know, she's become this megastar. And uh, so she'll still still be in the film. She's still producing the film with with my company and, and two other producers who are fantastic. Uh, but she, it will now star um, Lashana Lynch, who's fantastic, young actress who just uh, won the Breakout Award at the BAFTA last, not last year, the year before. And then I also have another project set in Italy called The Temptation of Gracie, which is set in Sicily, and it's based on a novel of the same name by Santa Montefiore, who is delightful. And uh, <laughs> the film is all about uh, the secrets of a family. There's a lot of beauty and food and all sorts of family secrets surrounding art forgery. It's a really fun multi-generational story, sort of a make you laugh, make you cry kind of um, piece. So there's a few things cooking, a few things cooking, and uh, I'm feeling optimistic. We've just, as you know, come out of a big um, a big moment in our industry of this strike. So uh, it's it's kind of disrupted things a little, put a few things on hold, but it's also been a great, really great time to be able to consolidate and uh, double down and really um, challenge the material that I've been working on. And um, I'm looking forward to making a really interesting, hopefully interesting series of films in the, the near future. Consolidating your storylines and making us love, making us cry. Thank you very much, Claire McCarty. Thank you, Victor. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. And thank you for having me on your brilliant show.